Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, a podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. Today's guest is seven-time world surfing champion, Lane Beachley. She's really taken their sport to where it is today. Seven-time world surfing champion, Lane Beachley. More than anything, she's got a mental edge on uh, the other women. Yeah, thank you for giving me the grace, and I'm sorry I'm late. I literally, surfers are like sheep, you know. I paddled out. I, li- I, had, I had literally only had 15 minutes, but for some reason, where I paddled out, where there was absolutely nobody, people just decided to join me and get in my fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must be so frustrating. I keep it's making infuriating. That as, I make that as my excuse for not learning how to surf because I just get too – because I come from swimming, right, where I had my own yeah. lane and no one touched me and I didn't have to worry about where anyone was. So. I really wish I had my own surfing lane. I really mm. do. Can I ask you, though, because I found yeah. it so interesting because I'm, I'm all about boundaries at the moment. This is something that I'm uh-huh. trying to teach myself because I'm just so bad at saying no and I'm so bad at kind of asking for what I need. And I just, when you sent me that email before we were meant to start today, just that you needed to have some time to go for a surf and you've had a day and you just needed that space. And I'm like, yeah, of course, totally get it. <laughs> like most of the time when people ask for what they need, other people are like, yeah, cool, no worries. Like, how yeah. have you developed that confidence and I guess self-assuredness to be able to ask for what you need? Well, look, as an athlete, we have structures around us that give us the uh, the permission to mm. say no because it's uh, either distracting or taking away from things that we know are more important to us. So we unconsciously or actually, no, very consciously, we put ourselves forward and we put ourselves first because we have a very clear vision about what we want to achieve. So it's that when you have a very clearly articulated vision, it simplifies the process. When you retire and you lose those boundaries, you lose the, that clear lane that mm. you're swimming in, uh, you stop giving yourself permission <laughs> to say no. And look, there's no real right or wrong answer. It's just that understanding that when you're saying yes to everyone and everything, you're saying no to yourself. Mm. And you're saying no to something that actually may be more important, but you're putting everyone else's demands or expectations or desires ahead of your own. Whereas an athlete, you never really did that. You put no. your own first. Yeah. You always had yeah. someone built in to sort of say no for you as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was someone else to give you. The, yeah, yeah, there was a barrier in front of you. There's someone defending you saying, and other people were defending our time for us. Mm. Uh, our schedules were defending our time. Um, our training was defending our time. All the things that we knew that were important for us to achieve our goals were defending our time. But when you retire, you lose that structure and then you lose that defence, that line of defence. So I, it took me about four or five years of, saying yes to everyone and everything, going through a bout of pneumonia, going into adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. uh, becoming an a, um, athlete liaison officer at the Olympic Games. Uh, like I just drove myself into the ground. And my manager actually gave me a trucker hat for Christmas that had no, no, no written on it. <laughs> As a reminder, Lane, learn to say no. Mm. For fuck's sake, you've got to stop saying yes. Just stop it. And uh, just stop it um, or I'll bury you alive in a box. And, and uh, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Anyway, um, so I went and found, I found a mentor and I, I sought counsel and I said, look, I need to learn how to create boundaries around myself and around my time. How do I learn how to honour myself? Mm. And she gave me some parameters and we worked on a lot of things, but literally she gave me this decision-making framework and there's something that I live by still to this day and that I teach through my course and my online academy. And it's literally very simple. If an opportunity presents itself to you and it lights you up and it fills you full of curiosity and excitement, then it's a hell yeah, go mm. for it. But if the same opportunity presents itself to you and you're either in a period where you're depleted or exhausted, you're overwhelmed, you're overworked, or you're answering the the call by saying I should or I could or I would, it's a fuck no. Yeah. And there's nothing in between. And so when you identify what's in oh, you like that noise? When you identify what's important to you, then you give yourself permission to respond to all cries for help or all calls for assistance or all 
you know, anyone reaching out to you, you put, I put that parameter around every one of those, those um, requests mm. and then it's either a hell year or fuck no. So when you reached out to me, I've been saying fuck no to every podcast for the last three months. Yeah. But because it's you and be also because it's a topic that I'm extremely passionate about, then it was a hell yeah from the start. There, were, there was no could, should or would. It was no. just absolutely. Well, but that means so much to me. That, Thank you. No problem. And I, I actually want to congratulate you and thank you for doing this because as you've realised, I'm sure from all the amazing people that you've spoken to throughout this podcast, there is no one-size-fits-all way to deal with retirement, mm. so-called retirement. It's more transformation and transition than yes. it is retirement. But in saying that, no one knows truly how to do it and we're all going to do it differently. But providing such a valuable resource that you're providing through all the glitters is a really um, – wonderful initiative and I'm really proud to be a part of it so thank you Lydia. oh thank you Lane that was just amazing like because you're, you're right everyone has such a different experience everyone you know comes from different backgrounds has different upbringings have different um, performances on different levels uh, you know for what they're able to achieve in terms of um, you know their sporting performance but there are so many similarities that we all go through as well. And there's so many similarities for why we've become the athletes that we become. You know, we all, uh, you know, I feel like on some level we're all trying to prove ourselves. We're, you know, never enough in some way. We're trying to be the best yeah. version of ourselves. We're all, we're all trying to prove something. Yes, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, from, from my perspective, you know, what you achieved in, in surfing and beyond, obviously, but particularly in surfing was – unbelievable you're obviously one of the best surfers of all time you know winning six consecutive world titles and a seventh a couple of years later I'd like to know because you know people looking from the outside they go oh you know that's that's probably what she's most proud of but from your perspective what are you most proud of from your surfing career I'm proud of the legacy that I left on the sport I'm proud of the fact that I left it in a better place than when I found it and surfing, when I found it, women's surfing in particular, was a pretty ugly space. <laughs> and I don't mean by the athlete's point of view. I just mean from there was a lack of recognition, a lack of opportunity, a, a lack of equality. I mean, women's surfing was like a sideshow. And, um, and I just had this grand vision that I failed to articulate and share with most people, but I really had this grand vision when I entered the pro surfing tour and just went, wow, I don't like where I see women surfing and I want to do something about it. And I didn't have a clear vision other than I wanted it to emulate women's tennis. And mm. from then on, I just set on my way to, to making a difference and challenging the status quo and standing up for what I believed in. And also recognising that I set the standards by what I allowed. And I allowed some pretty ugly behaviours to to unfold without pulling them up on it. But eventually we landed in a really good place and 2018 was when they announced pay equity and that was probably one of the proudest days of my life. It's an incredible legacy to, to leave <laughs> on the sport. That's amazing. How, like what? where did that come from? Like where did that goal come from because you started on the tour when you were about what was it 16 you spent almost well, two decades yeah, I started I started competing when I was 16 mm. but um, I joined the pro tour when I was 17 and uh, I feel that the vision emanated emanated from growing up in Manly and of course being the lone female in the in the lineup and being the tomboy and being nicknamed Gidget and just having the odds stacked against me continuously, I just thought it's just not its just not fair. Mm. <laughs> it's not fair that women have to go through this. And, look, I didn't see it as a place that I didn't belong, but I certainly viewed it as a place that was rather hostile and challenging and unwelcoming for women. There was no equality. It wasn't very safe. It wasn't very welcoming. It was far from inclusive. We were ridiculed by our male counterparts. We were rejected by our governing body. We were insulted by the surfing industry. Like there was just wow. no foundation of support for us. We were literally thrown into the deep end with a bunch of tiger sharks and told to swim and figure it out as you go. So it was pretty challenging. And I feel like the benefit of having those challenges as a teenager taught me to Look for those red flags and, and get a, you know, get a good read on it. Don't just take it for granted and don't just think that someone else is going to do it because obviously no one else was going to, going to make the change that I wanted to see in mm. the world surfing. So you're, you're facing, you know, the hostile environment that is, you know, surfing 
broadly, but then you're also facing the environment, you know, in the water <laughs> while yeah, trying to compete true. and, you know, be the best that you can be physically. Like, how do you do both? Like, how is that possible that you're able to kind of perform at that high level? And then, you know, because it took you a few years to kind of find your feet on the tour and, you know, get to the success that you ended up having. Like, how did those years play out for you? Well, if I, I joined the Pro Tour in 1990, I won my first event in 1993, I won my second event in 1994, and then by 1995 I'd won five events in one year. So that's when I truly found my feet. But it was also in 1995 when I wanted to quit because I set this goal that I was going to win my first world title in, in the first five years of my Pro Tour life, and I failed to meet that expectation, which also results in bitter disappointment because mm. that's the result of all unmet expectations and I was really bitterly disappointed and I was ready to walk away from it and what I've learned over time is the law of proximity states that we become the sum of the top five people we spend the most amount of time with. Now fortunately at that time I was spending a lot of time with world champions. I was also spending a lot of time with people who I refer to as my dream team and my honesty barometers, people who elevated me, people who were honest with me, people who believed in me more than I believed in myself, people who were willing to be my cheerleaders and my support crew because the alternative to that is be surrounded by your dream thieves and they're the people who bring you down tell you you're never going to make you're never going to make it you're not good enough you're not smart enough they pull you to pieces they judge you they criticize you they analyze you which was most of my peers really mm. were very quick to do that to me and fortunately despite wanting to walk away my dream team elevated me and pushed me back out into the world and so i was able to overcome chronic fatigue and able to overcome severe injuries and depression and all the other things that I dealt with in those few years to then dust myself off, reset, and get back out there and give it another crack. So in 1995, I came second in the world. In 1996, I finished third in the world. In 1997, I came second in the world. So I kept falling short. Mm. And then in 1998, eight years after being on tour, I cracked through my own self-limiting beliefs and was able to claim my first of what became six consecutive world titles. How do you go, but how do, this is what I find so fascinating is like, how do you go from in 1995 wanting to walk away from the sport? Like, I know that you've got your dream team, you've got people who are helping you and supporting you. How do you personally find that within you to keep pushing towards that goal and driving towards achieving what you set out to all those years ago? Well, of course, we all, you and I both understand the importance of having intrinsic motivation. So what is driving you to achieve what you want to achieve? And most of us don't realise it until after we achieve our goals and then we turn around and go, oh, yeah, that's what's driving me. Mm, totally. Predominantly it's fear. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah, and that's okay, but at what cost? Mm. Um, and we, that's a whole, you know, that's my course. <laughs> that's my whole online course. So essentially... What was driving me was my desire to prove my worth to the world, that I was deserving of love. But mm. I didn't become aware of that until 1997. So between 1995 and 1997, I just shifted my perspective. I stopped being a lay blamer and I started taking personal responsibility and accountability for my choices, my thoughts, my emotions, my behaviours, who I surrounded myself with, how I responded to my setbacks and obstacles, how I celebrated my victories. So all of those things culminated in setting a platform or a standard of behaviours that I then had to lift up to mm. and continue to um, propel myself forward from. And when I fell off that or when I strayed away from that, I knew instantly I was compromising my values and that's once again when I ne needed my, my dream team to turn me back around. You talk about people being motivated by fear. and mm -hmm. um, that Do you relate to that? <laughs> oh, look, you, I feel like you've just you've tapped into something there. Like. <laughs> um, because for me, like I, I always talk about um, when I was swimming, I really feel like I was heavily motivated by this feeling of being not enough and this never enoughness that I was trying to prove wrong. And I think... Are you enough now? I, I, I do. I, I feel now at 36 and having gone through two Olympic cycles where I've been able to watch and process my own swimming that I can say that I am enough and that I feel enough, but I still do fall into old habits for sure. Okay, good. 
Okay. Um, very aware of when I fall into those habits. Um, but what I, what I think that stems from was from um, my parents' divorce when I was very young. I don't have a relationship with my dad. There's this constant desire to prove something, I feel like, probably to him or to something yep. around that. Yeah. What 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 was it for you that you were trying to prove? Like who were you trying to change or what what was it that you were trying to navigate and process in your life that kind of drove you to those levels of, you know, detrimental to your physical and mental health? Yeah. If you ask me when I was competing, yes, I'm trying to prove to the world that I'm the best in the world. Mm. If you ask me in between world titles 6 and 7, I am just proving to the world that it can be done a different way. Yep. And I'm proving that I can do it from a place of love versus a place of fear. If you ask me now, based on the fact that I've been out of the sport, out of the professional realm of of competition for over 13 years, I can look back and honestly say now I was literally just proving it to myself. Mm. Um, I thought I was seeking the validation and reassurance of my adopted well actually my biological mother um, and you know I was adopted at birth I was adopted in a beach loving family last name Beachley came pro surfer Ta-da! all fantastic right <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> starts a however yeah but my mother who adopted me died when I was six my dad mm. told me I was adopted when I was eight and that was the catalyst moment that made me believe that I didn't belong anywhere and the only way that I believed that I was going to be deserving of belonging was becoming the best in the world at something. Mm. So when I became the best in the world at surfing once, I still didn't believe it. And I didn't believe it until I won six in a row because the record books had stated that Kelly Slater was the best of the best because he won five in a row. So to outdo Kelly Slater and to be deserving of the love that I desperately craved from I don't know who and I don't know where, Mm. I had to become a six-time consecutive world champion, which I did. And then one day my friend Jody asked me, what's driving you? Do you think it's because you're adopted? And that just, it like was, it almost shot an arrow through my heart. <laughs> and I just went, oh my goodness, yes, that's exactly what's driving me because it resonated with me so powerfully. So I often say I won seven world titles, six in a row, but five in a state of fear. And mm. that was number two to six. Number one and seven, my bookends were out of a state of love. So I've proven to myself that I can win in a place of from a place of love, and it's a much more effortless, graceful, fun mm, way fun. to compete mm. and succeed. But trusting in that is really challenging when all you've learnt how to trust in is fear mm. and struggle and and pain and suffering. <laughs> it's like we don't believe we deserve it unless it's a real struggle. Why don't we believe? Like I just I'm, I'm finding that really fascinating, and it's a, a conversation that I keep having with lots of people at the moment because I'm just so fascinated mm. by it because especially, um, you know, I've, I've got three young girls now and I have operated from the state of fear and this state of wanting to prove myself. And I just, I want them to be able to achieve whatever they want to achieve. And I think this is what you're doing through, through your academy and your online course, but like you want these people to be able to achieve what they want to achieve, but not from that state of anxiety and stress and constant grind you know like obviously you have to work hard in life to achieve wonderful things but where is that where are you operating from and I just that's what I'm finding so fascinating yeah so inside our brains and I'll, I'll make it as simplistic as possible but because we have this limbic system and this reptilian brain that it tells us these old stories over and over and over again it's like listening to a really negative radio station and never changing the channel And so if we're constantly tuning into that station, over time, those stories become our truth. And if we don't change the station, then we start to subscribe to these illusions and then we start to seek evidence that that's all that life has to offer us because we're constantly seeking evidence of what we believe to be true. It's if I knew how to get people to completely disconnect from old stories and embrace new ones effortlessly, then I'd be a gazillionaire. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we are very complex. Our brains are very complex. The stories that we subscribe to are very multifaceted and complex. And, and sometimes, look, perception doesn't start with the eyes. It starts in the brain. And unfortunately, what we see isn't always what we remember. 
and it's the image changes mm. once it enters our brain. And now all of a sudden the way we remember it isn't exactly the way that it happened, but it becomes the story, it becomes the tape, it becomes our truth. And now all of a sudden we're weighed down by this perception or this belief that that's the way it is. And then we go on this relentless pursuit to either validate ourselves and prove ourselves right because mm. <laughs> we'd rather be right than happy. Mm. Yes. Yep. <laughs> or we completely sabotage our lives and become uh, utter burdens on society mm. because we can't deal with either the shame, the pain or the guilt that we have judged the story by. So it all comes down to shining a light on aspects of ourselves that we're afraid to look at and reframing it. Mm. And unfortunately, none of this is taught in school. No. If we actually taught emotional intelligence in schools, we would be in a much better place in this yes. world. Yeah. However, it's not encouraged. Yeah. If we, I just feel like if we taught emotional literacy, you know, being able to co communicate how you're feeling inside, self-regulation, all of those things, like if we're able to articulate that, then as adults, we would just mm. be better. <laughs> Yeah, I think the movie Inside Out needs to be part part of the school curriculum. <laughs> yes, so true. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> I'm angry. <laughs> um, actually, my my three year old said that to me the other day. I'm like, oh, good job. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're angry about, but good job articulating. Yes, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the thing with kids too is that we learn from what we see more so than what we're told. So if you tell your kids you can be anything and everything and you're amazing and you're smart, but they see you stand in front of the mirror and tell you, tell you, you know, tear yourself to pieces, then they're going to learn from that more so than how encouraging and supportive you are. Absolutely. And they're going to create their own stories about it mm. too. Yeah. Yeah, quite often, randomly, I've had people say, look, I've got one kid who's driven and focused and committed and, you know, has the world at her feet. And then I've got another kid who just has all the talent, but none of the commitment. Mm. What do I do about it? How can I help them? And often I've said things like, well, are you committed and hardworking and disciplined and focused and all those things? And I said, and they go, yeah, of course I am. And I, and I asked them, well, does your child truly value time with you mm. and they're like yeah I'm like well does being committed and focused and disciplined and, and striving give you more time with your children or less time with your children because if your child perceives being driven and focused and disciplined as taking them away from something that they truly value then they're not going to embrace it mm. that's powerful so it's actually yeah so it's actually taking the time to see it from the child's point of view mm. and ask, and giving the child space to articulate that without putting words in their mouth. I feel that as parents you want to fix everything because we don't want our kid. Look, I'm not a parent, so I can't say this from a parent's point of view, but I have been a kid. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we don't, we, we don't want our kids to feel uncomfortable. We don't want our kids to endure maybe the pain and the heartbreak and the suffering that we endured as kids. So therefore we do everything that we can to avoid having them to endure discomfort. Mm. But it's actually the embracing and the, and the courage to sit in discomfort that builds the ability to be comfortable. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just so much yes I mean we do that as adults right like we we don't right. have this ability to sit in discomfort that's no, why we actually you know, do everything that we do is every, to avoid it everything that we do whether it's you know being procrastinating scrolling on your on your Instagram <laughs> or you know binging on Netflix or reading not necessarily reading books but if you read it to a point that you're ignoring other <laughs> things that you need to do like everything is about avoiding discomfort yeah and the thing is, if we, look, we can't move forward from anywhere other than the truth. Mm. Yet how many of us actually own how we currently feel mm. in this particular moment? And because society is constantly telling us how we're meant to feel and what we're meant to have and how we're meant to behave, we never actually honour our own feelings. Mm. And by doing, by focusing on what society expects from us, we then manufacture life's events to fulfill society's expectations as opposed to honouring our own. How are you so wise, Abby? <laughs> 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 I 
sound like such a wanker. But seriously, like, tell me how <laughs> Tell me your secrets. <laughs> Rosé, hot chips and a lot of surf. Yes, I did say I, 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 we do have something in common. Hot chips, man. Yeah, hot oh. just... I'm like a seagull do a hot chip. <laughs> I just love them. <laughs> All right, back to the topic. Um, yes, wisdom. <laughs> yeah, wisdom. Look, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of work. I've done mm. a lot of emotional work. I've had the courage to sit in the shit mm. and process it and feel it and go, wow, this doesn't feel good. This isn't who I am. This certainly isn't who I want to be. I need to transmute this. But the only way I can it is to go through it. I can't keep avoiding it. I can't keep numbing it. I can't keep running from it. I can't keep training. I can't keep working. I can't keep pounding the pavement. I've actually got to sit still for just one moment. And that scares the shit out of people. Because if you sit still, feedback occurs very quickly. Your body will start talking to you. And most of us don't want to listen. And the body whispers before it screams, but we don't hear the whispering. We just wait for it to break before like, oh, okay, I'll do something about it. It's like the fuel light coming on our petrol tank in our car and we just put the foot down and see if we can get another 150 k's out of this yeah. thing. You know, we don't honour our bodies. We don't honour our health and well-being. Uh, fortunately, as athletes, we've learned the importance of doing that. But then once again, we fall out of that um, habit once we stop competing because we don't see it as being important because yes. now we've got to fulfil everyone else's things. So, so the wisdom for me actually came from doing the work, doing the self-discovery, doing a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga, things called rebirthing, biosync therapy. I still see an NET specialist or practitioner every day, every week, which is called neuro-emotional technique because every physical ailment has an emotional component tied into it. And quite often the physical body will distract you from dealing with the emotional aspect of it because it's too uncomfortable to yeah. go into the emotional side. So give me the pull, give me the pill, give me the drug that's going to fix it. Just let me continue on with my life. Don't mm. don't make me stop in my tracks and go, oh, <laughs> you mean I have to stop? <laughs> and honor my body? To, what? What? <laughs> what the hell is that? This is shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> let me just go buy something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went on holidays. When we went in lockdown for a brief period in 2021, I went on a quick holiday for five days to Hamilton Island. And I remember after the fifth day I woke up in tears because it was the first first week in a very long period of time that I literally stopped mm. and my body was screaming and and it just disappointed me. I was heartbroken at mm. the fact that firstly I'd ignored it because I already I knew. Yeah. Deep down I knew my body was broken. I was like, just keep going. Um and I was really disappointed in myself that I'd got to that point and I just had to sit in that for a moment and go, This is shit. <laughs> I can't believe I've done uh, this again. again. I, I know better. Yeah. <laughs> but from there, I was able to start taking proactive action towards repairing. Mm. And you asked for what you need. You needed a surf today. You asked for it. I did. And you were able to get it because most people but say yes. <laughs> if you know, yeah, if you know what you need, then, and you have the courage to ask for it, majority of the time you're going to receive it. Yeah. There's going to be times when you may have been saying, look, I can't because I've got another call. And mm. I thought, okay, well, then I've committed to this, then I'm all in, and then I'll go and make sure that I've surfed after this. But yeah. either way, I know what's important to me. And for me to show up as the best version of me, I have to do something that fuels that version of me. Mm. And surfing is that fuel, that yes. energy source. So good. Yeah. Even if it was. 20 minutes. Yeah, it, but it's it's something, right? It's it's yeah. because I think a lot of the time people would be in your situation and go, oh, it's only 20 minutes, what's the point? But it's actually to take that moment for you to feel yourself and, and as you said, become the best version that you can be and showing up for people as well as yourself. Yeah, and I ducked over that first wave and went, oh, mission accomplished. Okay, everything is icing on top now. It's amazing. <laughs> so how did you know... How did you know it was time to stop surfing competitively? It was a really easy decision. And once again, it it took the courage to look in the mirror and I had to ask myself, am I willing to do the work out of the water to generate the results I expect in the water? Yes or no? No. I'm not willing to do all the training, make all the sacrifices, commit the time, the energy. I'm I'm just not that passionate about it. I still love surfing. I still love competing. I'm still qualifying 
in the top five in the world. That's so at 36 cool. 36 years of age, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm not here to make up the numbers. I'm mm. here to compete to win. And if I'm not committing what's required to achieve that week in, week out, then I'm better off stepping out and allowing someone else to fill that position that's going to to step up and do the work. You participate in Masters competitions every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's been – how many have there been? Look, the WSL have had one and I've competed in two ISA Masters World Championships, yes, and I've won, on, won all of them. <laughs> Just won all of them. <laughs> I'm a bit competitive. Just a little bit because it's so funny because I'm I'm just taking up master swimming at the moment. Oh, no way. Uh, yeah, I am. And I, I love and? it. I love it. And I'm like Amazing. I want I want to go to world masters but I just know that that competitiveness in me will just like mm. spring up again and I don't know if I'll be able to manage it. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why won't you be able to manage it? Oh, because if I don't win, then I'll what be. What does it mean? Well, because if I don't win, then I'll be annoyed at myself because, oh, you know. So can you get okay with losing? I need to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would it'd probably be helpful, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good chance, yeah. It's, it's a good, good chance. chance. It's a good chance. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, think, I think you've inspired me to um, – take it on when we next have those world masters championships just just embrace the opportunity to go and swim again with yeah, your peers race and, and i just and miss it, it so much yeah and it's for the love of it it's not for the win or the loss it's actually just for the love of it and uh and if you can get okay with losing then you'll stop focusing your attention on it mm. yeah because so then you'll true. focus on your attention on having to do what's required of you to get the best out of yourself because that's ultimately all you want you exactly. just want to be able to proud of yourself when you walk when you get out of the pool and walk back on that deck you're like i gave it everything i've got yeah but you know the only thing that's going to stop you from doing that lies between your ears yes exactly it's that it's that perfectionistic mentality that if you're not going to win then don't do it at all right and you know what brene brown says about perfectionism what does she say it's the it's the avoidance of judgment and criticism yeah 100%. and we become what we judge yes Hundred percent. So how are you? How are you criticizing that future version of yourself when you lose? How are you judging that version of yourself already? In so many ways, like. <laughs> so well, she's ways. she's your inner critic, so you can replace her with your inner fan and get on with it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Mm. Um, so, how did you find what you wanted to go into? Like, how did you navigate yeah. life after after competitive surfing? Look, I'd love to say it found me, but <laughs> that's so cliche. But you know what? In 1997, the year before I won my first world title, I went and did this self-development course called Money and You, ah. and it was really random. And I actually bought it at an auction saving, uh, raising money for my personal trainer's wife who had a really bad accident. And I ended up at this course for a few days, and it was fascinating because I always thought I had a real – scarcity mentality around money i thought i had a real tenuous relationship with it so i thought i need to go and discover what this is all about mm. anyway it one of the components of the course is we had to write a five-year vision and i wrote this vision and i put it in this folder and i never really looked at it again and <clears throat> then i moved house and i brought this folder to the next house and i had a declutterer come in and help me declutter because I can be quite a hoarder mm. and uh and she opened up this folder she's like okay is there anything in this folder that you want to keep and I started looking like no 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 and then I found this five-year vision and in this five-year vision it was saying things that I didn't even remember that were important to me so in the vision I literally had to write about where I'd be living how I'd be how I'd be living who I'd be living with what kind of car I'd have in the driveway, what the house would be facing, you know, just every aspect of my life. But within it also contained I wanted to be a motivational speaker. I was going to be a multiple-time world champion. I was also going to be uh, a sports commentator, but that was going to uh, fund my career as be, as, until I became a, a competent speaker. Uh, I was going to manage other athletes. There was all these things that I was going to do. Oh. I didn't realise I had these dreams and ambitions. I honestly thought I was just going to go from pro surfing to then 
I had no idea after that. And <laughs> who fucking knows? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, just roll the dice and for the best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the thing was that when I was competing in the latter years, that was when I developed. Oh, I you know I built my own foundation, Name for the Stars. Mm. I had a clothing brand. I was staging the richest surfing event in the world. So I had all these other passion projects, but none of them really fueled my passion as much as competitive surfing did. And as you know, when you become successful, everyone wants to know how you did it mm. and what did you do. Yet very few athletes are able to clearly articulate it and break it down where it's relatable and applicable to other people's lives, exactly. irrespective of where they are in their lives. Mm. So that became my next focus of attention is how can I create a, a story around my story that I can then share with people. So when I stopped surfing or stopped competing, it took me about four years and I was already talking. I was already on the speaking circuit and I wasn't that great, but I was still getting called up yep. to do it. So I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not completely shit at this, but I'm not great. Mm. Uh, and so I started going and watching other speakers and then tapping into high performance coaches and I just was doing I was utilizing resources around me to build my skills and then randomly I went to a brewery launch with John Singleton I think it was the pure blonde launch actually mm-hmm. up in his up in his brewery up in um, central coast of New South Wales and I remember him. I remember saying to him, "Listen, I think I'm going to make a comeback. Women surfing needs me." <laughs> <laughs> I had convinced myself that it's just not surviving without me. Exactly. Oh, fucking load of bullshit. But anyway, that's how. <laughs> that's how steeped in my ego I was. <laughs> and I said, "I've just, I just, I said something along the lines that I just don't have any. I'm not passionate." There's nothing passionate, well, nothing fueling my passion in my mm. life. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have any passion in your life. And that once again triggered me, similar to that question is, do you think it was you adopted? And, like, and I just went, holy shit, he's right. I have plenty of things I'm passionate about in my life, but I'm spending so much time, of, so much energy focusing on what I've either lost or missed out on or what I think I should be doing, could be doing, would be doing, that I'm actually not focusing my attention on the things that I am doing. Yes. Right. So I actually went, right, that's it. No no more thoughts about comeback. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> surfing's doing just fine. <laughs> I don't need a wild card. Mm-hmm. I don't need to come back to the women's tour. It doesn't need me. I don't need it. Mm. I've created a legacy. I've got my trophy room. Like, mm. everything's okay. Women's surfing is in a better place. I need to focus my attention on what I really am good at or what I'm really passionate about now. Being realistic and as this, as you know, as an Olympian, standing on a podium is not emulated in any other area of our lives. <laughs> standing on a podium with a trophy being sprayed with champagne, where on earth are you ever going to experience that ever? <laughs> you don't just come home and go, it's like, woo! <laughs> there you go, babe. <laughs> You don't you don't smash your targets in the corporate world and everyone puts you on a podium with a trophy and sprays you with champagne. Yeah! Woo! You go, girl! Woo! Maybe we should, I don't know. I don't see the problem with it, quite honestly, other than it might ruin your outfit. Yeah. That could be an issue. So <laughs> right when you're in a bikini, you just jump in the shower. Anyway, um, look, I just decided that I really needed to stop focusing on what what was and start focusing my attention on what is. And what is is I have an amazing life. I've snagged a rock star. I live in a beautiful house. I still surf every day. I get to travel the world. People want to learn about how I was able to become successful. I want to learn about how I can be better at doing that mm. to better serve the world. So then my focus then shifted from serving myself to serving others. Mm. And that's when I found my sweet spot. So that is when... The Awake Academy was born, I guess. Essentially, yes. So I've been a motivational speaker for, what, 15 years and I was travelling the world and I was doing about anywhere between 40 to 65 talks a year. Wow. I was on the road 180 days a year and here I am talking about sustained success in a very unsustainable way. Mm. And one of my friends once again stopped me in my tracks and went, let's take a snapshot at what's going on here. You know what? Let's put a pin in it. <laughs> Let's just leave it hanging there, right there. 
And I had a I had a look at it and went, holy shit, this is very unsustainable. This is very unhealthy. What the fuck am I doing? Yeah. I'm a hypocrite. And um, she's like, okay, so what do you want to do about it? And I went, hmm, I've always wanted to digitize myself because I don't see this as a long-term solution. Me traveling the world, walking away from things I love, more time with my husband, more time in the water, more time with friends and family, all of that has been taken away because I feel like I have to give more to everybody mm. to, for what? Am I giving more or am I doing more because I believe that that will give me more or that I have to do more or like what aspect of myself am I validating here by doing this? Anyway, I decided that I needed to collaborate because as you know, we're, you know, we're independent humans. Of, <laughs> yeah. Control freaks. Yeah, but look, it might have been said once or twice. <laughs> I needed just to find the right person. Mm. We needed to find the right level of support. I mean, even though, yes, we might be control freaks and selfish, but we've always had a great team yes. around us. And she became my business partner and she held me accountable. And she said, all right, let's, um, what, what content have you got? I said, well, I've got this book idea. And we turned that into my online course and I spent the whole of 2020 writing it and then fortunately we got shut down so I was able to rewrite it and and uh, and then put it through a psychology lens through because we've got a partner called My Mirror who are a, a um, like a telehealth but video conferencing uh, psychology support network from the comfort of your own home so you don't actually have to go to a clinic and uh, and so they went through it just to make sure that it was safe and yeah, sound and practical and <laughs> and lived up to everything that I said it was going to. Yep. And um, and then I launched it in September 2020. And so it's basically all of my life lessons as an athlete and as a retired athlete distilled into a self-paced online course called Own Your Truth to help people wake up and own their shit and trust mm -hmm. in love. Yeah, I love um, on the website it says Own Your Bullshit. <laughs> Well, no, it's actually, I call it no bullshit transformation. No, no bullshit transformation. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're all about. Yeah. Right, this is not a goal setting course. I'm not going to, I'm not going to inspire you to, you know, quit your job and go and start a cat orphanage. This is all about owning your truth. This is all about identifying who you are, building an awareness and a connection with your fam, with your emotions and your dreams and your stories and your triggers and, disconnecting from fear or detaching from fear, bringing back the fun, finding a flow. So ultimately what we're creating is more centred, connected and confident human beings. Because mm. I fun. think, yeah, yeah, amazing. Like, <laughs> I mean, how good for the world. Like if people are mm. looking at themselves and sitting in that discomfort and, you know, you talk about awakening and, and you know, being aware of who you are as a person and those feelings and putting words around that. I just think it's only going to be good for the world right absolutely yeah and as athletes we had the courage to do that didn't we i mean you can't become the best by not knowing who you want to be and what you want to achieve mm. and um and i know ben crow talks about this a lot through mojo crow and he talks about the two most important questions you can ask yourself is who am i and what do i want and it has to be in that order because you can't determine what you want until you understand who you are yes so important so important mm. Yes. I have two two more questions for you. Um, okay. <laughs> big ones. I'll do my best to answer them succinctly. <laughs> I have so many questions, but I'll, I'll finish with two. Um, Thank you. What, what did it mean to you to see surfing in the Olympics this year? Was that interesting? I did it make you want to it. have a comeback? <laughs> no. <laughs> for a brief moment. Until I saw how everyone surfed, I went, gosh, I'd look like I'm in slow motion surfing backwards <laughs> compared to those girls. They're so powerful, so fast, they're so dynamic and they're so amazing. So I'm in awe of the talent of our current generation and our future generation, especially of our female surfers. Absolutely extraordinary. When I watched it on the Olympics, I was amazed at how intrigued I was, but how invested I was in it. I mean, of course, as chair of Surfing Australia, I, I was all on my I had my fingerprints all over that mm. because um, I, I create I was a part of the the evolution of our high performance program yes. and therefore creating that pathway from from you know grassroots all the way through to the podium and now to an Olympic podium. So it was something I was very excited to to witness and be a part of. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to Japan, but 
it was exciting to watch and I loved every minute of it and uh, and I feel like surfing has earned its right to be there and I also believe that it's going to create a, a whole new generation of surfers to pick up a board and, and participate in what I believe is one of the most amazing sports in the world to, to learn mm. and it's created a whole new aspirational pathway because it's it's not just about hitting the tour and becoming a world champion but you can also become an olympic medalist which i don't feel surfers truly understood the the gravitas of it until they actually achieved it and then they realized holy shit we're on the biggest sporting field on the planet and someone's putting an olympic medal around my neck (laughs) well that's what i I find really interesting because i always as a I don't know what the word is, like just a full-blown Olympian. Like that's what swimming is all about. Like that is always the the biggest goal. You're the epitome of it. Yeah, that's what we've always dreamt of, right? Mm, Whereas for sports like tennis or soccer or, you know, rugby sevens, like golf. Yeah, golf. Like why is golf? I'm sorry. Why? (laughs) Why is it there? I'm with you. Why Why is it there? So I'm always interested (laughs) because surfing obviously is all about the world tour and I always wondered – would the athletes resonate, like would that become, and, you know, seeing yeah. Owen Wright win bronze this year, you could yes. see the emotion, you could see the passion, you could see the, just the pride of representing mm. your country and, and winning a, an Olympic medal. And we've never really had the opportunity or the platform to do that. I mean, the ISA host events where you, get that opportunity to, to represent your, your country in a team environment. But this is the Olympics is, you know, that's like amateur hour compared to what the Olympics presented to our sport. And, uh, yes, we finally got to experience it and it was great to see the athletes embrace it. And as you said, the, the pride that oozed out of them when they were standing on that platform with their, their national flags behind them and their national anthems being played and everyone cheering them on. Uh, I, I feel has really catapulted surfing into a whole new stratosphere. Mm. And, uh, and, and I truly believe that the athletes now, like the future generations, are going to benefit from what the, the first uh, iteration of, of, um, of surfing in the Olympics actually meant and how it felt. So we've, we've still got a lot to learn. Yeah. But uh, I think it's going to become a, a, um, a permanent part of the Olympic fixture. Yeah. Uh, it should. I'd I, like to see that. Yeah, I, it should. I, I absolutely loved watching it. I loved watching, you know, the rock climbing and the BMX mm. and, you know, the skateboarding. How good, how good was the rock climbing? Oh, it was amazing. Well, see, Any time a new sport comes into the Olympics, I'm like, maybe I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> what, as your comeback? <laughs> yes, is this your Olympic this comeback? This is me. This is me and my <laughs> ego going, maybe I could do that. I'm like, maybe Lane can give me some sort of talent identification for surfing. <laughs> Got strong shoulders. Uh, look, I'm good, but I'm not a magician. <laughs> so true. That's fine. Uh, oh, yeah. crushing my dreams. That's fine. Uh, it's so yeah. fine. <laughs> I'm just a realist. You're a realist. I'm an honesty barometer. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm not here to tell you you can do anything because, honestly, we can't. We can't. We can't. No. And that's outside of my realm. That's fine. <laughs> um, okay, final question. Yeah. Normally I kind of pose it around retiring athletes and advice that you might be able to pass on to athletes who are making that transition. But I think with your experience. I can answer that in a little bit before you ask yeah. me the question. Yep. Um, look, be patient. Mm. Just take it slow and give yourself permission to feel everything that you're feeling. Yes. Because you will go through days when you're like, yes, I love retirement. And then you go through days like, shit, I want to make a comeback. And then you'll go through days like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with my life? So, yep. look, there's no there's no uh, right or wrong way to go about it other than the fact that you just need to give yourself some time. Yeah. And because I wanted to also ask in terms of life transitions in general because mm. I think mm. ultimately – retirement is just a huge life transition for a lot of people and you know it's not just about those moments it's about anything that you might be transitioning to in life and change like how and I assume that answer would probably be the same just patience and giving yourself permission to feel yeah and also uh, committing to something else 
um, it's almost like we leave one foot in that door in the event that it remains ajar. We might just be able to slip back through it. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. my God, that's so funny. I've literally talked about this, like, for eight years. I've been a commitment phobe since yeah. I have retired from swimming. I've been really right. scared to dive into something, pardon the pun, but, like, you know, to mm. really just sink my teeth into something else. Mm. So interesting. Well, now's your opportunity. No. <laughs> Can you be part of my dream team? <laughs> okay. Sign me up. Where's the contract? Amazing. I'll send you one. Great. I got a dream team contract. But yeah, it really it really does come down to just Look, I actually asked John Howard. I said, "How long did it take for you to embrace retirement from politics?" And mm. he said, "Look, it took me about 3 or 4 years." Wow. And I said, "Well, how did you lean into that?" And he said, "Well, I just kept immersing myself in my family and and I kept reflecting on my career and I was really proud of some of the things I achieved. So I gave myself a pat on the back occasionally, but I just kept looking forward. I kept Mm. going after things that I really, you know, was passionate about and loved doing. So and family was definitely one of those things. Now, of course, he's still heavily involved in the commentary around politics Mm. and no one can ever underestimate the impact that he had on our nation on the success of, of Australia. But it's different for everybody. But the main lesson in it is actually letting go of who you once were and embracing who you are now and letting go of the story, letting go of whatever illusion that you have or whatever memory that you have and recognising that the windscreen is much bigger than the rearview mirror. And the only reason that we refer back to the past is to learn from it. It's a valuable resource, but our past doesn't have to be our future. We've got so many wonderful memories and lessons and experiences that we can look back on and go, yes, I'm going to take the best of that, but I'm going this way now. I've got to step into who I am today and who I want to be tomorrow. Otherwise, you're robbing the world of your gifts because you're playing a small game. Well, I couldn't think of a better place to finish our conversation, Lane. That was just magic. Thank you so much for your time and um, energy and wisdom and all of those things. It's just been an absolute privilege. It's been Awesome. Thank you so much for all that you're doing, helping anyone who's going through this transition. You're making it an easier and safer place for us to have these conversations. And also thank you for giving me the time to have a surf before I jump on the <laughs> You're so welcome. Anytime. <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> Boundaries and asking for what you need. <laughs> That's right. It's a hell yeah. It's a hell yeah. So good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on All That Glitters podcast today. It, Lane Beachley is just such, um, I don't know, such an icon of Australian sport for me. And, I mean, you could hear it in the chat. I was very lame and, you know, totally fangirling over her and what she's achieved both as an athlete but in more importantly in life after her sport. She's just full of so much wisdom and generosity with her knowledge and I just absolutely love that chat. So if you want to learn more about Lane, um, we have all of the details in the show notes about her Awake Academy, so make sure you check that out. Otherwise, if you can, like, subscribe, rate, review, all of those things, I really appreciate anyone who's had reviews already Um, and if you have any ideas of people that you would like me to interview next uh, make sure you slide into my dms at all that glitters pod yeah otherwise i hope everyone has a fantastic week and i'll chat to you next week bye